0: these slave owners these oligarchs they developed the rhetoric uh, the anti-tax rhetoric that's still so powerful today
1: hello everyone welcome to equals this is nadia
2: and hi everyone this is max
1: max can you believe it's our first episode together this entire year nabil's been stealing the show man finally our turn to shine together we <laughs> made any resolutions for the year
2: Yeah, honestly, I really can't believe that it's February already. I mean, the year's shooting past. And in terms of New Year's resolutions, well, it seems a long time ago now, but I don't know if it's a resolution or not, but I've decided not to take UK politics so seriously because it was destroying my well-being, depressing the hell out of me.
1: Uh, Yeah, let's not go there. Mine's not so deep. Prioritise family more. Stop working evenings and weekends.
2: That's much more practical and a really good one. Certainly more <laughs> cheerful than my one. Anyway, let's move on to why we're really here today. So today we'll be listening to an interview that Nabil and I did with uh, Gabriel Zuckman, French economist based in the US, infeasibly clever and incredibly influential. With Emmanuel Saez, he's the co-author of The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay which is a fantastic book and is causing ripples, especially in the US, and really having an impact.
1: It really is. And that's his second book, believe it or not. This guy's only 33. He's already won the prize for best young economist in France. And I guess you have to be young to win that. But still, if my work was being taken up by leading presidential candidates, I think I'd just go ahead and retire, you know, feeling rather unaccomplished by the age of 37.
2: You think 37 is bad. You should try 47.
1: Yeah, you really are getting quite old, man. (laughs)
2: Thank you very much, Nadia. I prefer to see myself as experienced and wise. Anyway, should we listen to the interview then? Yeah, let's do that. So, Gabriel, thanks very much for joining us on Equals. Uh, It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I've been following your work for a long time and really enjoyed the book, which I finished last week. Um, So it's, it's great that you could join us. Thanks so much for having me.
3: Gabriel, we'd, we'd love to talk to you about your new book, The Triumph of Injustice, how the rich dodge taxes and how to make them pay. And it's and it's you that's authored this book with Emmanuel Sayes as well. Could you talk to us a little bit about the book and what are the big ideas in it?
0: Yes. I mean, perhaps the most important idea is uh, the idea that tax avoidance, tax evasion, tax competition are not laws of nature, but there are choices that we make collectively through our governments, sometimes not very democratic choices or very transparent uh, choices or the product of of an informed deliberation, but choices nonetheless, and we can make other choices and we can choose to refuse tax competition. We can choose to have uh, tax coordination, tax harmonization, another form of globalization rather than the current form of globalization. Uh, We can choose to regulate the tax evasion industry. And this matters because many people uh, throughout the world, uh, and in fact, most policymakers have become convinced that uh, taxing uh, uh, the rich, taxing big multinational companies has become impossible or almost impossible in a globalized world. You know, you tax them and they will move abroad. They will shift profits to tax havens. They will hide wealth. And so it's hopeless. And uh, and there's no future for tax justice. And what we try to explain in the book is, look, you know, this is wrong. Uh, we can make other choices. And in fact, it's totally possible to reconcile globalization a fully integrated world economy with economic justice and tax progressivity in particular.
2: I think that's a really powerful message and it's 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 a challenge we come up across uh, all the time this idea that inequality itself is inevitable and one of the reasons it's inevitable is because of in a globalized world the rich can just escape so how, how do we stop them escaping? How, how are we going to effectively tax wealth in the modern world?
0: We are seeing a huge increase in wealth concentration within country and at the global level. And we think that the most direct and powerful way to address that trend is to have a tax on wealth uh, itself. Um, this is becoming a more... And more mainstream uh, idea. Uh, the other very important um, dimension is the is the corporate tax, and and we can talk about that. The corporate tax is um, uh, is is the prototype example of a tax where everybody has the feeling that it's not workable anymore. That taxing big multinational companies is not doable anymore because of tax competition. More than $600 billion in profits, to be precise, are currently each year booked by firms in places like Ireland or like the Cayman Islands or Singapore or Bermuda. And uh, on top of that, you also have kind of a a real form of tax competition where production, headquarters, uh, move to low tax places like, for instance, Ireland. But what we are saying is, look, uh, some countries choose not to collect taxes, so the tax havens, but that's not an obstacle to other countries collecting the taxes that that tax havens refuse to collect. So what we are saying is, the countries that wish to do so, they should act as tax collectors of last resort. So for instance, if... um, US multinationals uh pay a 1% effective tax rate in Ireland, uh, the US should collect uh what's missing. So for instance, the remaining 24% so as to arrive to an effective tax rate of 25% in each of the country where US multinationals operate. And you know, other countries can do exactly the same thing. So just to conclude on that, the idea is. Some, in fact, many multinational firms have a big tax deficit. They pay much less in taxes than they should pay if they were subject to a a minimum 25 percent country by country effective tax rate. There's a tax deficit. Some countries have to act as tax collectors of last resort to collect this tax deficit. And this would remove any incentive for uh, tax havens to offer low tax rates in the first place. And so you completely get rid of uh, tax competition. And so you, you, you start, you embrace a new form of globalization that's characterized not by the race to the bottom in corporate income tax rates, but by a race to the top where countries, instead of competing by slashing tax rates, compete by... Providing the best education possible to workers, yeah. providing yeah. the best infrastructure, and so on.
3: What do you say to those people, Gabriel, who say that you're being anti-wealth, you're being anti, you're, you're being anti-growth? Isn't it the case that when we bring these taxes down, that puts more people into money's po- into people's pockets, so they can invest more in the economy, and that gives them more freedom? You're you're saying something quite different here, aren't you?
0: Well, what I, what I tell these people is uh, why not, you know, in, in theory, that's an argument that, that we can hear, but now look at the data and look at history. And uh, for instance, look at the case of the U.S., which is probably the most striking case in the sense that the U.S. used to have the most progressive tax system in the world in the 1950s, 1960s. And, and then quickly in the 1980s moved to a much, much less progressive tax system to the extent that today it's actually a regressive tax system where the super wealthy pay lower tax rates than everybody else. So the U.S. says there was this huge transformation. And now you can look at the data. So is it the case that uh, trickle down policies, that the big decline in tax progressivity, has boosted growth and has helped the majority of the population. And it's very simple now to see that the answer is no. First of all, you look at uh, aggregate growth statistics. Uh, From 1946 to 1980, uh, the average income growth rate per adult was 2.2% a year. And each group of the population, each income group was growing at roughly 2.2% a year. Since 1980, from 1980 to today, this average growth rate has been only 1.4%. So you have less growth. You had much more growth when the tax system was very progressive. And now you have much less growth. But more importantly than that, more important, you look at the dynamic of income, for the bottom 50% of the income distribution, what you could call the working class, the lower half of the distribution with the lowest pre-tax income. In 1980, their average income per adult was $18,000 per adult adjusted for inflation. And today it's $18,500 a year per adult. So you've had almost zero growth over almost 40 years for half of the population, zero growth. You have half of the population that's been excluded from economic growth.
2: Thank you, Gabriel. I I wish I could have persuaded Nabil uh, with as much strength. And (laughs) and the book is really strong on that one. I mean, it's so, so categorically clear. And then the comparison that you also make with France. I mean, France is far from perfect, but you have seen this increase in working class incomes over the same period. So, you know, France exposed to the same level of globalization, but making very different choices. It's true that
0: inequality has increased uh, pretty much everywhere, but at a very different pace. And uh, you look at uh, the U.S. and Western Europe, for instance. In in both cases, the top 1% income share was 10% in 1980, In the U.S., the top 1% now earns 20% of total income, and and in in Western Europe, it's about 12% of total income. So, in both cases, inequality has increased, but it has increased much more in the U.S. than in Western Europe, and that's due to the fact that in in both of these economies, there's been a turn to, to market fundamentalism, to uh, more inegalitarian policies but the turn has been much more extreme it's been more extreme in the us uh than in other parts of uh of the world and so that's an important lesson because it means that um policies are key it's not globalization per se it's not technological progress that's that's driving inequality. It's it's government policies related to taxation, to education, uh, to the regulation of the financial industry, uh, infrastructure and so on. That's what matters, that's what shapes the distribution of income.
3: I, I really appreciate that idea about how it's, it's, it's not about globalization per se, but the kind of globalization that we have and the kind of global economy that we have. Um, Gabriel, I'd like to I'd like to zone in a little bit here on the political viability of your ideas. Now, they sound exciting. I sometimes read these figures, Gabriel, and I think how many hospitals, how many schools, how many nurses and teachers uh, could they fund? You know, how many kids they can take out of poverty. Um, but at the same time, this has been the mainstream for a very long time. You sometimes look at the media pushback on on many of these ideas. What's, what's the big case for a wealth tax today? And just as importantly, like, how
0: can you convince people behind these ideas? Look, I think people are already convinced, actually. There is, uh, in in the polls, in the opinion polls that are conducted in the US and in many other countries, you see that the idea of taxing the wealthy more, taxing big multinational companies more, Making sure that the big winners from globalization, instead of paying less and less, actually pay more. These ideas are very popular. And what we're seeing now is is the beginning of a change. We are seeing uh, in many countries uh, a more progressive uh, uh, economic uh, program and platform uh, that's being advocated to to, to address the demand for distribution, the demand for uh, another more fair form of globalization uh, that that is evident uh, in the data and among the population.
2: I agree. I think you know, one of the things I loved about the book and, and your whole approach um, is it's really rooted in history, in the history of the, the US. and Because I think, it, you know, this idea that the US is kind of almost naturally a very low tax economy that has to have a small government that yeah, you know, it's almost un-American to to tax rich people, and you really look back in the history of the U.S. and 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 find that that's not the case. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about that and the kind of case it, within American history for these kinds of progressive policies.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have two uh, intellectual uh, traditions in the U.S. It is true that there is a, a, a strong anti-tax anti-government, and in fact, uh, anti-democracy tradition. This is uh, uh, rooted uh, to a large extent, although it's a complex phenomenon, but to a large extent, it's rooted in in slavery. Uh, The uh, uh, slave owners of uh, southern states uh, in the 19th century, in the 18th century, we were very concerned. They had one big concern, which was that uh, people would use taxation as a way to abolish uh, slavery, you know, by having property taxes, for instance, on slaves. And, and they, these slave owners, these oligarchs, they developed the rhetoric. Uh, the anti-tax rhetoric that's still so powerful today. You know, they did everything they could to say, look, taxes invade uh, privacy. Uh, 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 Property rights are uh, sacred. Uh, There should be safeguards, strong constitutional and legal safeguards against uh, uh, democratic tax policy uh, making. They did everything they could to... uh, to limit the, the, the progress of democracy in the Southern states. And, they, you know, more importantly, they created, you know, the rhetoric, the, 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 the line of thought, uh, uh, the anti-government, anti-tax worldview that's still prevalent some today in some, in some parts of, uh, the population of the country. But you also have another tradition, which is a progressive tradition. And, um, And uh, in fact, the US uh, invented some of the most progressive um, uh, uh, tax policies in the world. So the US invented with the UK, the quasi confiscatory taxation of very high incomes with top marginal income tax rates of more than 90% uh, in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt in a famous speech in 1943, uh, said, look, nobody should earn more after taxes than $25,000 of the time, you know, the equivalent of several million of today's dollars. So he went to Congress and he said, look, I think we should have 100% top marginal income tax rate above $25,000. Can yeah. you imagine if somebody said that today, what they'd be called?
3: And this is FDR, one of the greatest ever presidents this, of, of the United this States. This
0: is FDR, you know, this is FDR, and, and people in Congress, you know, they hesitate a little bit. They find 100%, maybe it's a bit too much, but they agree on 93%, which is not so far from 100%. And, and then uh, for several uh, decades, that's the policy of the U.S., you know, even under Republican administrations in the, in the after war. Uh, Period, Uh, the US also invented the quasi confiscatory taxation of very high estates and inheritances with uh, top estate tax rates of close to 80% from 1930 to 1980. So there is this tradition, um, and we're seeing a revival today of that uh, tradition. And what we're trying to do in the book is to help. The, the US and the world reconnect with that tradition that's been forgotten by many people. In the way people remember, is Ronald Reagan saying government is not the, the solution, government is the problem, and, and Americans hate taxes, that's in their DNA, and, 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 and they forget about yeah. 50 years before uh, that. And that's what we are trying to change. That
3: is that is that's fascinating, Gabriel. Let me try to connect some of these ideas. And you mentioned they they speak to the world. Now, imagine if 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 Gabriel, you had the audience of uh, a bunch of progressive policymakers here in Kenya or or in Pakistan or, or somewhere else in the world. What are the big ideas for change to the global tax system that you would try to get them excited about?
0: I, I, I would try to to convince them that uh, it's possible to have a fair tax system uh, in in, in today's uh, uh, globalized world and uh, in the developing world in particular. Most advice that, that, that policymakers in these countries have received from the IMF, from the World Bank over the last decades when it comes to taxation boils down to this. You should have uh, sales taxes or value-added taxes. You should tax consumption, and we are going to help you do that. And uh, you should not, you should not care too much about progressive income taxation or progressive wealth taxation. And I think that advice is short-sighted because you know for most people, uh, wealth is is safety, is security. It's a good thing good to have wealth but for the very very rich wealth is not safety wealth is power and an extreme concentration of wealth means an extreme concentration of power including the power to influence of course policy making but also the power to influence markets the power to influence ideology you know through the media if you want a healthy uh, democratic society you need to make an effort at limiting the power of the very richest individuals. So the view that the only path towards prosperity and development is, is to have a regressive tax system and to tax and spend is not true. You, know, you can uh, uh, rely essentially on, on, on progressive income and wealth taxes instead of consumption taxes. That's what I would say.
2: So listen, okay, with well, this is the final question. We ask everybody the same question, which is, and you, you're very optimistic, and one of the lovely things about your book is, is this sense of possibility, which I think is so important, and people want hope. But in, in the fight against inequality, in the fight for tax justice, what, what gives you the most hope at the moment? What gives me the most
0: hope is, uh, is history, because I see that change happens all the time. Uh, and that things that people thought would never happen uh, would, you know, uh, actually at some point become reality. And sometimes it happens very quickly. When I started uh, my, my my research, my PhD dissertation in 2009, uh, there was no exchange of bank information between tax havens and foreign countries' tax authorities. That means that uh, if you were a, a rich uh, person living in France and, and it was child, child's play to hide assets, you just had to op- open a bank account in Switzerland, move your wealth there, and the Swiss bankers would not tell anything to the French tax authorities. And at the time, I, you know, I remember non, uh, non-governmental uh, organizations saying, that's absurd. Uh, there should be an automatic exchange of bank information. Swiss banks should be forced to send data to foreign countries, tax authorities, just like domestic banks already do. And and I remember very well, because it was not so long ago, uh, what policymakers uh, said. They said, most of them, it's it's utopian. It will never happen. How are you going to force Switzerland to send information? You know, they have bank secrecy laws, if that, that's their right, how can you make them change their laws, change their mind? Uh, it's impossible. And then in the in, in the following years, we saw a new form of international coordination emerge in the sense that now many tax havens exchange bank information with a number of countries. And let me be very clear that it's, uh, it's too limited and it has certainly not solved the problem of offshore tax evasion and to be very naive to believe that the very same bankers who for decades have been helping their clients evade taxes, you know, smuggling diamonds into toothpaste tubes sometimes, that these very same bankers are now mm. honestly cooperating with, with the world's tax authorities. But you know, despite the limitations, it's a big progress. We have this new form of international coordination it's harder for people uh, in a number of countries to hide assets and it has happened quickly. So change happens, the the history of taxation, the history of inequality is full of U-turns and that's what makes me optimistic about the future.
2: Brilliant. Great talking to you and keep, keep pushing. And we feel equally optimistic and we think uh, the debates in the U.S., really set the tone for the rest of the world too so if you can begin to ship things there then you can begin to ship them everywhere so thanks gabriel
0: thank you so much
3: thank you very much gabriel
1: Wow, he has a very persuasive way of presenting these ideas. It's clearly technically at the top of his game, very accessible. You can see why his work is being taken up so broadly. And
2: his optimism is just infectious. He makes it sound so sensible, so plausible. It makes you start thinking, you know, why are we not doing this already? Why hasn't this happened? And I particularly liked his answer about hope, you know, when he looked back into history and he it shows how history has episodes of dramatic progressive change when really good things have happened and that this is possible and it can happen again.
1: And I know many of us feel the need for hope right now.
2: We certainly do.
1: And his framing that we can embrace a new form of globalization which defines competition differently from what we're used to seeing really appealed to me. You know, he gave that example of better education, better infrastructure as a way to attract businesses and workers rather than, you know, Countries lowering their tax rates and essentially driving a race to the bottom. I
2: also liked his point about globalization and inequality. That often, I mean, often many people describe high inequality, a huge gap between rich and poor, as somehow inevitable, an inevitable byproduct of globalization, technology change. But his point is if that were true, it would be rising just as fast in countries like Germany and France as it is in the US. But inequality is not rising in those places as fast. And it's rising much, much quicker in the United States. What this shows is there's simply, there's just simply nothing inevitable about rising inequality. It's a conscious choice made by governments. This
1: theme has actually come up in several of our interviews, hasn't it? And it's it's choices that governments are making, as well as the advice, support and influence that governments get. From institutions like the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. Yeah,
2: it's true. the The IMF are really influential.
1: And the fact that they're not showing that much interest in, you know, putting taxes on the rich, which would be considered a progressive tax system, where the richer you are, the more you pay, let's say, and which would actually help make societies more equal. Instead, we see them pretty consistently pushing value added tax, which hits poor people harder. So the opposite, really. Um, And they do that on the basis that it's a quick and efficient way to raise revenues.
2: We now see VAT make up two-thirds of tax revenues in sub-Saharan Africa.
1: It just strikes me how there's so much unexploited tax revenue from wealth out there, you know, like property taxes, inheritance taxes. It's just not being done. Here
2: in Kenya, for example, the IMF were really pushing the government to remove any exemptions on VAT, which hit the poorest hardest and led to uh, protests in the street. And at the same time, we were not seeing any support from the IMF for proposals on taxing top incomes or taxing wealth. We calculated last year for our Davos report that out of every dollar raised in taxes globally, only four cents is coming from taxes on wealth. Four cents? Yes, just four cents in every tax dollar comes from wealth taxes. So wealth is simply not being taxed enough.
1: On the one hand, countries are desperately trying to raise more revenues for schools, hospitals, roads, electricity. But then we see them not looking at all these obvious ways to tax wealth. It's frustrating.
2: It is. And let's remember this is not just for revenue raising either, but also to make societies fairer, more equal, and to reduce the power of the richest on politics. When too much wealth is concentrated in too few hands it often translates into too much influence over politics. And I thought Gabriel brought that out pretty well in the interview.
1: He did. And that sounds like a great note to end on. Tax wealth to reduce inequality for the sake of democracy could be a new slogan. You're welcome, Elizabeth Warren.
2: I'd vote for you.
1: (laughs) Thanks, man. And thanks,
2: everyone, for listening. Brilliant. Thanks, everyone. Do subscribe and, and email us if you've got any feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Equals. At Oxfam.org.
3: Bye.